Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. King MOX at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Nothing impossible on KMOX. We've got a lot to get to on this edition of the show. Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan with you as we talk about the latest advances coming out of St. Louis. And we're going to start off with how do you break into the industry? You graduate from college. You're like, what do I do now? Well, we're going to talk with a St. Louis startup who uh, began here. They've really spread their wings. They're not just a St. Louis startup anymore. And they're not even going by the same name as they originally were, or even their second name, Travis. They're on the third. This is called a pivot in the industry, right? A lot of pivots, and we're going to check in with Chris Motley from, we might remember him from Better Weekdays. The company is now called Mentor Spaces, so that'll be our first segment. be great to hear what he's doing these days. And then we're going to check in with a BioSTL program and a farmer in outstate Missouri, how St. Louis is helping to develop and discover new technologies, and then connect them with farmers in outstate Missouri. People assume that if you're involved in a startup, it's about tennis shoes and hoodies, but maybe it's about red wing boots and flannel. Let's see what really happens in the field. You know, those could also be the attire for an Uber or Lyft driver. And they're going through some strife in California right now about whether they should be classified as independent contractors or employees. And if you've ordered your groceries, your dinner, or a ride somewhere during this pandemic, it's a issue that affects you. And that could affect uh, Missouri and even here in St. Louis, but we should also think about how startups sometimes become successful by cutting corners. So we'll get into all of that as we move forward on Nothing Impossible, presented by BioSTL. So stick around. We'll be back right after this with Mentor Spaces and Chris Motley. King OX at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. And we're continuing our conversation, Michael Calhoun, along with... Travis Sheridan. And, uh, you know, in the startup world, we hear the word pivot a lot. You start off in a certain direction with a certain plan, a certain idea. Maybe market conditions change. Maybe you realize that your customers have a different type of need. Uh, we're going to talk to an entrepreneur right now who has done some very strategic pivots and has uh, a connection and roots in St. Louis. He's living in Denver now, but uh, you know, once a St. Louis and always a St. Louis. And Chris Motley from Mentor Spaces. How are you doing? 
I'm doing well, Travis. Good to hear your voice, and nice to be uh, nice to be back. Now, uh, for those that might know you from Better Weekdays or the weather, tell us a little bit about this this transition from Better Weekdays, the weather, and Mentor Spaces. All the same company, but doing something different now. Yeah, yeah. Well, really, I think it's the classic case of you know <laughs> when you start executing the work, you look at the data, and you have to sort of have intellectual sort of integrity to say, is this working in a way that can scale? And, you know, with the previous iterations of our company, we realized that while the technology worked exactly how we wanted it to, the users didn't use the product in the way that we thought they should. And it really comes down to just really getting deeper into the pain point. And so for us, you know, we thought that the key pain point was the lack of awareness that young people faced when trying to find jobs in college. And so we built a job matching sort of engine. But what we realized is that, well, people only get jobs every two years. Um, and so that basically engineers a ceiling of usage of your product to once every two years. And that kind of assumes you're the only game in town. Uh, so we went through a process of talking to our users and really understood that the key pain point that they struggled with was a lack of confidence uh, as it related to sort of transitioning from college to career. And part of the reason that sort of drives that lack of confidence is what we like to call the network gap. You know, someone's network never intercepts with uh, a certain career path or a person who has a certain career path or a skill set uh, the person would never understand the depth and breadth of opportunities available to them. So we took all of this stuff and, and sat down as a design team and said, you know, how might we create a product or service that both increases confidence, closes this network gap, and does it in a sustainable way? And, and that has become uh, what is now known as mentor spaces because mentorship helps to accomplish those two goals. And tell us a little bit about how mentorship is doing now. Uh, is it, it is launched, and what's been the reception? So we, we launched in sort of a private beta a few months ago. Um, the reception uh, has been fantastic. Um, you know, we kind of expected it, to be honest, because we spent a lot of time researching why we screwed up so badly <laughs> the first time. Uh, and so it was really um, the, the, the convergence of a lot of the feedback we received from both uh, our corporate customers um, who complained about a lack of engagement from our user base and our user base who said, well, I feel like I'm being assessed all the time. I would like something a little less formal that could help me understand more about these opportunities. Um, certainly, um, you know, first with COVID, um, despite the fact that um, companies, everybody freaked out in the beginning, but now people are learning how to sort of live with it, so to speak. Um, and the kind of emphasis on adopting new technology to facilitate better communication has been one, uh, like, kind of uh, tailwind for us. And then the second, you know, certainly with the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and others, and just what the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement um, it's really gotten a lot of companies to be a little bit more focused on doing something that can move the conversation forward as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so um, while all of this stuff was conceived before uh, current events, uh, when we launched it, uh, it was in the midst of everything that we're still dealing with right now in this country, and that's been 
um, super helpful in terms of customer acquisition uh, and partnerships. It's, it, I, I love the tagline for mentor spaces, which is lift as you climb. One of the things that I think about when I look, even the, the mentors in my life is they may have, we may have connected in a very informal way, but that mentoring men, uh, protege relationship, regardless of how much older I get, you know, my mentors are still my mentors and I'm still their protege. What type of long-term relationships do you see evolving from these types of interactions? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that mentorship, you know, in the traditional sense uh, is something that's really organically formed. And, you know, technology really can't facilitate that. What technology can do is create the conditions that will result in some of those more organic one-on-one relationships. And so I expect, um, you know, very similar to a dating app. I mean, dating apps create the conditions for you to meet people, but once that relationship sort of, you know, starts and matures, you're not, (laughs) if it's successful, you're not on the dating app anymore, and you take it off of the technology. I think we'll have a lot of opportunities to continue to innovate, uh, to help facilitate um, communication, Uh, but I do feel that at a certain point in time, things organically sort of uh, uh, shape um, in in a traditional way. But one other point to mention, you know, you talk about our tagline, lift, lift as you climb, which I really appreciate you highlighting that is that actually comes from, uh, it was called the uh, Association of Colored Women, uh, the National Association of Colored Women that included some of the, like, titans, uh, black women in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that were um, really, really helpful in the passage of the 19th Amendment. And, uh, and their motto for their organization was lifting as we climb, uh, and so we were really inspired by that. I was a history major in college, and so I was just—I thought about all these things given uh, the current events and obviously the the hundred-year anniversary of the Nineteenth Amendment. And so it just seemed pretty fitting to uh, change it a little bit. That that that's speaking to our users, um, uh, but uh, certainly it, it has its roots. Uh, back all the way to the 19th century. And Chris, uh, tell us a little bit about the history of Better Weekdays to the weather and mentor spaces. In terms of uh, St. Louis and the tech ecosystem here, the company starting here, what uh, aspects of mentor spaces are still in St. Louis versus we're talking to you from Denver, you know, what's in Colorado now? Yeah, well, Better Weekdays has been around for almost nine years now. And, uh, and you know, I look at you know, at the end of the day, from an entrepreneur, I've always wanted to create a platform that allowed me to, you know, build and create products and services that ultimately help people. And, you know, the weather was a move to separate our entity name uh, of Better Weekdays, which is still the company name, and sort of a product or a brand name. Uh, and there's lots of strategic reasons why you would do that. Uh, but but that's that's where the weather sort of came uh, into play uh, in 2017, and then Mentor Spaces is really uh, a departure away from the weather um, in terms of brand, obviously, but also product, um, our positioning. I mean, everything is completely completely different. But you know, the vision of of, of Better Weekdays um, and everything that we've done from the very beginning has always been about you know using technology to create serendipity for folks um, in the areas of uh, career advancement and development. 
Um, and, and if we were able to, to, to build something super successful in that, uh, in that area, you know, it would naturally expand out to, um, you know, uh, leveling up from an education standpoint, uh, as well as sort of financial literacy. Uh, but right now we're just focused on, on mentorship to see, to nail it and scale it and then hopefully have other opportunities. Um, and then in terms of sort of, you know, where we are currently, you know, we have offices um, like many people in several places, uh, Denver being one, St. Louis being another, and in the D.C. area. Uh, but no one's going to offices anymore. And so we've made a commitment well before uh, the pandemic to really have a more virtual sort of workforce um, because it allows us to um, really engage in communities in a very authentic way. And quite honestly, this opens up uh, your possibilities for talent. Um, if you're not constrained uh, by geography. Uh, and then I think, you know, in terms of ecosystems, uh, I love the ecosystem movement that's been happening all across the country the last several years. Um, everyone has this different flavor, whether it's Chicago, uh, where, I, where I started the company, um, and then St. Louis, and, and then now primarily being in Denver. And, you know, one example of that, you know, in Denver uh, is that they've really done a good job of, uh, from a from a startup community standpoint, trying to be sort of a uh, um, uh, sort of a central point, you know, in having one of the largest startup weekends uh, in the country. Um, no different than sort of Austin, Texas, having you know South by Southwest as being their sort of anchor uh, festival um, celebrating entrepreneurship. So everybody takes this different flavor, but for me, it's all about. You know, what is the most efficient way to get your product to market, solve your customers' problems, and, and scale from there? Now, uh, Chris, if people wanted to learn more about Mentor Spaces, the website's mentorspaces.com. But what is the onboarding or the interaction that they could have just even in this, in this private beta? Yeah, well, they can apply to be a mentor, uh, which, which is uh, super important. Um, we want everybody to be mentors uh, and, and actually you know, our vision is that, you know, depending on the subject matter, uh, one person could be a mentor on one subject and be a protege in another. So we, we imagine those roles to be interchangeable. But, you know, people can apply to be a mentor, mentorspaces.com, you know, companies that, you know, uh, at least have faith in mentorship as being a way to develop diverse talent pipelines. Uh, again, they can schedule a call with myself or my team, and we can talk about what that looks like in terms of, onboarding them as a company, engaging with their employee resource group, and starting to build those talent pipelines. Uh, and then for those folks out there who are just looking for advice, uh, joining mentorspaces.com um, to understand, um, you know, and get your questions answered uh, as it relates to career paths you're interested in. Well, check out mentorspaces.com. Chris Motley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, enjoy what I know about Denver, 300 days of sunshine a year. So uh, enjoy all that the, right. the outdoors, even in the midst of COVID. Thank you so much. Stick around. We have more Nothing Impossible presented by BioSTL right after this. King MOX at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. 
Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Michael and Travis with you. And, you know, a lot of researchers in St. Louis, a lot of folks at startups are working on the latest and greatest inventions when it comes to agriculture, especially that's one of the industries that's uh, really in the wheelhouse for St. Louis. But how do you know if those new inventions, those advances in technology work, if they're convenient for the folks who would eventually be customers, uh, farmers? And, and so there's a new program from uh, BioSTL that we want to profile that uh, Travis is helping to bridge the urban-rural divide in Missouri as well. Yeah, it's called the Early Adopter Grower Innovation Community, or EJIC, as, uh, as, as we can shrink, out, shrink it down to an acronym. And we're joined today by uh, Quentin Rund. He is the EJIC lead for BioSTL, and Blake Hurst of Hurst Greenery. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. Well, thank you. Morning. And so, Quentin, maybe you can, uh, you can start. Tell us a little bit about EJIC. Well, EJIC started, we, uh, we took a look at all the ag technology that was becoming available to farmers. And uh, in a lot of cases, uh, the ag tech companies are kind of pushing that toward the farmer and saying, would you like this? Would you be interested? And it seemed, seemed a bit overwhelming for the farmer. And we thought uh, it might be a good idea to uh, just start with the farmer first and ask them what they need. So we set out uh, the EJIC project to kind of create a new pathway to get ag technology to the farm. And, and so we start by asking farmers what they need and then use our network of uh, solution providers to try to find somebody who's working on a solution for that need or that pain point. It's a little different approach. Well, and I, I can imagine, and this we, we've heard it throughout history that you know, farmers have been sold snake oil, right? That, that snake oil salesman come to town with the latest, greatest innovation that's going to magically save their crops and save their farms. Uh, but very rarely do the growers have input in, in what, the, what their needs are and, and what innovations would be most important to them. How do you see this flipping that on its head? Well, uh, by by starting with the farmers, so uh, starting with farmers like Blake and uh, and others who have tried different technologies and uh, evaluated different things on the farm, but asking them really, you know, where are they where are they having their pain points, where are they having their uh, issues in their farm operation, and uh, it's been interesting in talking with the different farmers. I don't think they're used to that approach, so. When we go to them and say, what is it you need, at first it becomes uh, they're trying to understand our perspective on this. I think uh, they're used to having companies come to them and say, hey, here's our solution. Would you like to buy this? And so when we take that and, and as you said, stand it on its head and ask the farmers first, what is it you need? Uh, it takes them a little while to understand that we're, we're trying to be genuine with this. We're trying to work for them. And uh, as we make that transition, farmers are really becoming uh, uh, more open about what it is they need and uh, helping them. And then we can help them find solutions for those needs. And that, it's, it's beginning to, beginning to take effect here. So. And Blake Hurst of Hurst Greenery, is this something that you've experienced? Uh, large companies maybe deciding what they think farmers need and then pushing it down and maybe it works for you and, and maybe it doesn't. Is that, has that been your experience? Oh, sure. I think that uh, I think companies have been uh, remiss 
refine their willingness to to to, to ground through some of their uh, some of their technologies to, to to actually talk to people that uh, have to make them work because uh, it, it, it is. The, the conditions that we work on in the farm and the dirt and humidity and the rain and the and the wind, uh, first off, is it going to work when it gets out in the real world instead of uh, being in somebody's tech lab somewhere? And uh, I think that's what EGIC is trying to do, is trying to bridge that gap, and uh, uh, I think it's working. Blake, where have you experienced this? I think we've seen uh, news stories about... Um some pesticides from companies. We've seen uh, the seed battles that have been going on over patents and replanting. Um, are those mostly along the lines of where you've experienced this, or has it been, you know, technology? Uh, you know, how have you encountered this? Well, I mean, we, we, you know, we can look at technology from from, from seed breeding. That's um, perhaps the um, the methods they used to breed the seed have changed, but obviously. Ever since Henry Wallace introduced hybrid seed in the 1930s, we've been um, making choices about seed. So, so, so the pathway from the laboratory to the farmer is pretty well established. Uh, but when, as we moved into precision farming, uh, GPS technology, all the things that we're doing now that are uh, depend on bits and bytes, uh, that pathway is not quite as well established. So, so sometimes things are introduced into the market that are are too expensive, particularly in our sort of uh, economically tough times that we're going through now are too tense, it's, it's expensive, or just won't work when they're exposed to uh, farm-like conditions. So um, my experience with EJIC has been, you know, the, the Martin called me, asked for uh, some problems I was having. I gave him a list of things because obviously farming is any other occupation. There's always lots of problems. Uh, some of them were um, and are very difficult to accomplish and uh, some of them are a little bit closer to being uh, in a in a form that uh, can be adopted by the farmer. So we're actually have just made our first purchase of a technology that was brought to our attention by Egypt, and are waiting for it to uh, uh, for the FedEx man to show up with the uh, with uh, with the uh, with the tech, and we'll install it on the green bin, and we'll see how it works this fall. Can you tell us what that technology is, and what, it, what you're hoping it'll do? Uh, yeah, it, it actually monitors the grain in the bin. Um, uh, as it turns out, instead of uh, when I first started looking for something to help me monitor my bins, I was thinking about temperature. Uh, when grain, uh, when grain, if it starts to go out of condition, it increases the temperature. And come to find out uh, through what I learned from Egypt, the best way to to monitor grain is to to monitor actually the CO2 or the carbon dioxide that it's giving off. That's an early indicator of uh, condition problems of grain that's on its way to wanting to be whiskey, and which is not what we want on the farm. We want to later on the next day. Definitely not what I want to happen on my farm. Why is to monitor that CO2? This this device does that. Uh, it actually will. Um, we we dry and maintain the condition of grain with grain with forced air. It will actually um, control my fan. So I'm really excited about it. Uh, it will turn the air on when I when I'm showing when, when the formula show me it's time to blow the grain. In other words, changes in humidity and temperature have made that necessary, and it will also monitor uh, any CO2 that the grain is giving off and give me an uh, advance warning if I'm having some grain start to get in trouble. Well, it, it, it's it's really amazing because when I think about you know there's there's two things that I think about when I think about farming, uh, you know. Managing the resources it takes to grow something, and then 
increasing the yield. And uh, either either Quentin or Blake, can you talk a little bit about how technology and innovation has addressed both sides of the of that equation? The ability to be much more precise uh, with with how you ma- use and manage your resources and the outcome of of better yields. Well, uh, just from, from my perspective, of course, uh, we're getting needs from farmers across the Midwest. We're, we're working with farmers, uh, you know, uh, throughout uh, Missouri and Illinois and Indiana. And, uh, what we're, what we're hearing is those needs are, are, are going into just what you're talking about there. Is there ways that we can increase yield? Are there ways that we can manage our resources, uh, more efficiently? Those are two big bins that, that the needs fall into. But another one that, that comes to mind is just in labor. Um, I, I think uh, uh, labor resources are becoming more tight, and so farmers are looking to work more efficiently. So in addition to increasing yield and cutting costs, it's labor-saving uh, devices or technologies. Uh, those have been the, probably the three primary characteristics of the, of the needs that are being presented to us in the Egypt program. Is there any kind of a barrier to entry financially for these new technologies that maybe there, there might be help with that, uh, you know, getting, a, getting your hands on these might be a little too capital intensive, but because they're new, because they're being tested, there might be more access than there would be regularly? Well, I think, as I mentioned before, you know, car prices, uh, livestock prices with a uh, combination of the trade difficulties and covid uh, have disrupted supply. I mean, I mean, we're under some financial farmers under some financial stress. So, so I think that there is less capital available for us to uh, adopt new technologies. Having said that, uh, the best way to um, to deal with low prices for the things we raise is to figure out how to uh, produce them more efficiently and cheaper. So, so, so the impetus, the the, the incentive for me to get better. Uh, stronger than it's ever been before. When when corn was at the levels it was, um, you know, basically double what it is now four or five years ago, I didn't have to be very good to be profitable. Uh, now I have to be really efficient in order to uh, continue to farm. So so while while the present situation has made capital a little bit more uh, difficult to, to, to commit to new ideas, uh, it has really increased the incentive for me to do so. Well, I wanted to ask about the, uh, you mentioned labor as one of those inputs. Uh, have you have you seen maybe the uh, the profile of who's farming and who work goes to work for a farm change over the years? Are you seeing more uh, technology-driven uh, labor and, and talent being attracted to this to this industry maybe than, than before? Well, I mean, I think we're all um, aware of the fact that the average age uh, farmers is increasing, and um, you know we're we're what is it? It's close fifty nine, fifty eight, fifty nine years old for the average farmer, and that you know I think that's uh, uh, some so, so questions about uh, how we're going to make the transition to to younger generation, and we've always done it before. And I'm sure we'll accomplish it this time as well. But but there's no doubt uh, that farmers are um, getting older, uh, and you know the, the 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 technology we talked about uh, earlier to monitor grain in that bin. Uh, you know, my bin is, uh, let's see, it's got six rings and they're three. <laughs> I mean, it's 21 feet tall and uh, you climb up the ladder and I'm 63 years old and uh, perhaps not as spry as I was 30 years ago. Uh, 
And I think that's something that you see in a lot of farms uh, where a lot of labor is supplied by people that are are middle-aged or, or more. And uh, so, so, so they're looking for ways to substitute uh, technology for the, you know, farming is one of the highest um, industries or occupations with chance of injury. Uh, only a couple that I think rank higher. And uh, people are looking for ways to do things more safely. So, so this is a part of the reason why I'm uh, I'm getting this technology is to uh, limit the number of times that I have to climb a climb a ladder and take that risk. I, I'll echo those comments there. I mean, we we've seen uh, some of the farmers, particularly uh, in, in irrigation, where they're looking to for. They're going around having to check uh, sensors and irrigation programs uh, to see where they're at and uh, having sensors in the field to help uh, inform them of what's happening in the field uh, can cut their their drive times, their inspection times. Um, We're seeing that with uh, sensor technology helping cut labor costs in terms of just checking insect traps at the edge of uh, seed production fields and things like that. So if, if these sensors can help communicate things back to a farmer's office or better yet to their mobile phone, wherever they are, uh, that, can, that can help uh, save labor time. Be able to run your uh, run your farm from uh, the beach somewhere, right? And just uh, make adjustments on your, on your mobile phone. That would be nice. Uh, Quentin, what other types of technologies are you seeing requested or coming through Egypt? Well, when we, what I've found is when we start talking about, when we open up and start talking about needs, uh, one of the big ones has been just rural broadband connectivity. Uh, mm-hmm. They want to, farmers have wanted to take advantage of a lot of the uh, software technologies, the remote sensing technologies but the bandwidth and reliability of their internet connection just isn't up to the task. And so that's been one of those foundational technologies that uh, if we can improve that one, then I think we can take a lot of, uh, take a next step on a lot of these other technologies, but we've got to fix that, that infrastructure problem first, that connectivity. I think, uh, I I think uh, Blake is, is doing all right where he's at, but, that's that's not been the case with a lot of the farmers I've talked to. Um, just uh, trouble with wireless, trouble with cellular connections. That that rural broadband has been a big challenge. We've seen quite a bit of um, some of the money that uh, has been uh, you know funded for the various uh, coronavirus relief programs. Some of that is going into rural broadband and actually. Um, the Secretary of Agriculture just announced a large grant for uh, the Cape Girardeau Jackson area down in southeast Missouri yesterday. Uh, so, so, so out of and coronavirus, of course, is just sort of emphasize what it is Martin is teach, talking about. Is as kids have uh, in our local school district, although as he mentioned, we have pretty good uh, pretty good connectivity at our farm. Um, have problems with cell service over the county, but have good connectivity right at the farm headquarters. Um, but as our school, our small school system let out here in uh, March uh, in response to the to the virus, uh, they were just unable to do online learning because there's just not enough kids had good uh, connectivity. And as they, and, you know, as they kind of surveyed the students, they found out they were just not going to be able to do it. 
Uh, so we're getting to go back to school in person. I think that'll probably be, uh, be fine. But we don't have uh, the connectivity across our area, and I think it's true for a large part of Missouri. The statistics I see say that about a third of, third of the people living in rural Missouri don't have good connectivity, uh, don't have the ability to download lesson plans, to do telehealth, or uh, to do the precision farming that uh, Martin is involved with. Blake, what do you cultivate at Hearst Greenery? Uh, we have uh, a, a greenhouse business and do uh, bedding plants. Uh, we're mostly a wholesale business because, of course, there's not much population in Madison County. There's 5,000 people in Old County, so we sell. We sell. We're in the corner of Missouri, Northwest corner, so we sell across uh, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, and Missouri. And then we also grow corn and soybeans. So we have a traditional, uh, traditional grain farm, but also a greenhouse business as well. How does this bring together the state of Missouri and maybe help uh, cultivate some statewide pride? Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at that, and then I'm sure Mark will have even better things to say. But, you know, it's pretty darn exciting time to be a, a Missouri farmer. When you look at our state, uh, you've got a tremendous um, plant science resource that stretches from Columbia to the St. Louis area to the Danvers Center. You've got uh, what they call the Animal Health Corridor, which goes from Kansas City up towards St. Joe. A lot of the leading technology in agriculture has been developed right here in Missouri. And uh, is every farmer in Missouri aware of that? Oh, probably not. But many of us are. And many of us are taking advantage of that proximity to all all that knowledge to, to get better at what we do. Now, a, a lot of these projects... Uh, a lot of the research is going into what you could sort of in a very big broad way call sustainability. And I think consumers need to know uh, that we're working very hard to, to, to manage the resources, the soil and the water that uh, we're in charge of um, in, in a more efficient and uh, more environmentally friendly way. And I think that research is helping us to do that. Um, clearly, you know, the, the, the project that Martin and I have been talking about for my grain bed this morning goes to You've seen the statistics where 30 or 40 percent of our food supply is wasted. Uh, that's obviously too much. Uh, and and the problems I'm trying to solve are very much a part of food waste. That corn, uh, if it goes out of condition, is no longer uh, able to go into the to the food system to be used for feed or for uh, for raw stock for um, you know all the things that they make out of corn. So so this is a part of part of that sustainability challenge that we all face. So those are those are some excellent points, and I'd just uh, add to that. If as we look for solutions to these farmer needs, I think one of the things that we're going to find is we might find uh, maybe a company in in uh, Israel or Ireland or different countries has maybe come up with a solution that our Midwest farmers would be very interested in. And if we can attract those kind of technologies to the area. Um, uh, they're going to need people that uh, get out and, and uh, work with the farmers, and we want to encourage local talent and local people to get involved in those new technologies. Uh, that would offer some new jobs in the rural communities and uh, um, uh, try, to, try to help bolster uh, a foundation of those technologies in the region. So um, I think that's another aspect of that rural-urban uh, component. We're trying to attract people back to the rural areas and not see uh, not see an exodus for lack of jobs, but uh, maybe we can 
spur some growth in the in the job area as well. So if we want to repopulate some of these rural communities with communities with people that are are working online, working from home, uh, we've got to have that broadband piece. The infrastructure is definitely necessary. Quentin Run from uh, EJIC uh, Lead for BioSTL and Blake Hurst for Hurst Greenery. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back with more Nothing Impossible presented by BioSTL right after this. KMOX at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Well, let's check in on the gig economy right now, whether you're taking advantage of these services to earn a little extra bucks during the economic downturn, or whether you're staying home and using these services to get food, groceries, get rides, uh, to help social distance. Uh, the gig economy is certainly in focus now more than it has been. And let's welcome in Harry Campbell, who is a blogger under the Rideshare Guy. Thank you so much, Harry. Thanks for having There's some conflicts going on in California right now. Can you uh, let us know where the tension is between Uber and Lyft and the state of California? Yeah, sure. So basically what's at stake right now is on uh, January 1st of this year, 2020, uh, a law was passed called AB5. And basically it was a three-point test that really made it difficult for Uber and Lyft to continue classifying their drivers as independent contractors. So we've seen a number of legal efforts, lawsuits by the state to enforce this law because the companies feel that their drivers are independent contractors. But basically the way the law is written, it's very hard uh, to argue with that, but it uh, hasn't stopped Uber and Lyft from trying. And uh, really things kind of came to a head uh, this week and we sort of saw a deadline given to Uber and Lyft that they basically have to comply and make their drivers employees. And if they don't, um, they're basically, you know, Uber and Lyft have actually threatened that they would pull out of California rather than comply. So I think it's sort of, you know, whether you agree or disagree, it kind of highlights what an existential threat the companies feel that changing their drivers to employees would be for the business model. Yeah, and in terms of what the difference is, uh, we're talking about uh, minimum wages and, and health insurance. Why is there this debate about independent contractors versus employees? What's the difference? Yeah, so there's actually a big difference. And, you know, on the company side, it costs about 30% more, according to the experts, to hire workers as employees rather than independent contractors for the reasons you mentioned, you know, providing a minimum wage, providing benefits and workers' comp and, you know, everything that you're entitled to and that's sort of been fought for over the past 50 or 75 years for employees. And really why this issue has popped up in the gig economy is because when you look at the origins, the gig economy was sort of built for, you know, frankly, like some of the times we're seeing right now, a recession. People need quick and easy access to cash. And I think that for a lot of folks, even though there are some who are doing it full-time, it's really uh, becomes a tough job when you're doing it full-time because you don't have benefits, you don't have the safety net. And so there's a bit of a conflict right now, really between the drivers and the people who believe that this gig is more suited for part-time work. So for someone who's doing 5, 10, 20 hours a week or less, and those that are doing it full-time, because if you're driving 40, 50, 60 hours a week for Uber right now, that's a tough job. And you're basically kind of driving like an employee without being treated like one. So that's really kind of the, the core of the battle. And, you know, drivers are uh, actually, most drivers are actually in favor. We did a recent survey of over 700 drivers across the country, and uh, 71% were actually in favor of being independent contractors. But for those who want to be employees, you can imagine that, you know, having health care is very important to them, right, if they don't have it right now. 
And what if we see, I mean, this sounds very reminiscent to some of the earlier conversations and conflicts that a company like Airbnb had, uh, another gig economy type uh, company where, uh, you know, they, the hosts were not paying hotel tax or hospitality tax, and that was having a direct impact on the community. And of course, they made some, some evolution there as a company, Airbnb did. But can you talk a little bit about how these, card, these startups or these tech companies almost ha- can only be successful if they are circumventing some of the standard policies? Yeah, I think that's really what a lot of the, you know, sort of Airbnb, you know, larger sharing economy and gig economy specifically, I think the big argument against them is that really the way that, you know, you and I are able to get such cheap rides, for example, is because, you know, we're not paying the true cost of the ride. (laughs) And, you know, drivers, for example, are, uh, you know, sort of not making as much as maybe they hope or should. And so I think that there's definitely a good argument there. I think that there are definitely some reasons, you know, I think that most cities, people would argue that, you know, taxis were not a great experience. And now from the consumer point of view, calling an Uber or calling a Lyft, you know, having that technology, having that app, having your credit card on file, you can sort of see, I think there are a lot of positives, but there are definitely some negatives. And so I think right now, regulators are frankly, I think, struggling a bit to find that balance where how can we enable, you know, services like Uber and Lyft, which I think most people have been, you know, would argue have been a net positive, but at the same time, how do we remove some of the negative externalities, right? Like drivers who are not making minimum wage, drivers who are struggling. And so in California, you know, they've decided that basically they'll convert drivers into employees. Personally, I'm not convinced that that does the most good for the most number of people. But, uh, you know, I think it is clear that something needs to change because there is a lot of dissatisfaction and turnover amongst uh, drivers and gig workers at large. We'll continue to watch it. Harry Campbell, the Rideshare Guy, the rideshareguy.com. Thank you so much for your time helping us uh, understand the latest with uh, gig workers and navigating through the gig economy. Thanks, Michael and Travis. Appreciate it. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Nothing Impossible, presented by BioSTL. Come back next week and we'll have more. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.